News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. <laughs> FAQ. Hello, it's FAQ NYC. I'm Christina Greer. I'm here with my co-host, Harry Siegel, and our executive producer, Alex Brooklyn. Welcome to this special episode of FAQ. Hello. It's Election Day weekend. Yes. And everyone in America is waiting to find out if the state Senate in Albany is going to have a supermajority of Democrats changing things in a big way. Am I right? Yeah, that's basically what's been on everyone's minds for the past four years. They can hardly sleep. I think there's another election, though, that some people are a touch interested in. On November 3rd, we may know who our 46th president of the United States will be, or maybe Donald Trump will be reelected as the 45th president one more time. And spoiler alert, I'm pretty sure that Joe Biden is going to carry New York, where uh, the, the lines for early voting and hooray early voting, which is a really nice thing to finally have. Thank you, Board of Elections. Thank you. No, no. Thank you, Legislature. Board of Elections, get your shit together. Do better. I know they need to do better, but I mean, come on. Let's just let's give a little credit where credit's due. Thanks to the folks in Albany. I did take advantage of early voting. Uh, I voted two and a half hours, but it was totally worth it. How about you, Harry? Two hours. Um, I got in line right at 7.58, you know, when, when uh, it was closing at 8 on Tuesday at the Armory and Park Slope. Uh, this lady got in line at like 8.03. This lady cop came over and is like, nah, nah, not you. And she's like, oh, come on. I'm here with my friend and so forth. And the cop walks away. I'm like, okay, cool, cool. She's off with the warning. And then she comes back with one of the, you know, election day people. And it's like, that one, that one can't vote. Wow. That's There's, wow. And Alex, you haven't voted yet, right? No, you're, I haven't. You're one, of those, you're one of those same dayers. <laughs> uh, there's something about voting on election day that I really, really like. And I, I mean, I've got to tell you, since COVID and the shutdowns, I just started going to sleep at 9 p.m. and waking up at like 4.30 a.m. It's a little more normal these days. But since I wake up early anyway, I was like, you know what? I really want to vote on Election Day. I really I love voting on Election Day. I think that there's something really special about it. I think because of my schedule on that Tuesday, I didn't want to chance it just because I saw Errol Lewis tweeted, I think it was Friday. It was five minutes before the polls, the early polls opened at seven. And there were a few hundred people in line around the block in the rain and the pitch black. And I was like, you know what? Just in case Tuesday uh, at 6 a.m. is popping, I, I just can't afford to, to do it on Election Day. I wish I could, though. But, you know, once the meetings start, they don't let up. So we decided to convene and chat for a minute and do this very special episode. I think we're going to have one post-election as well, uh, just taking all this in. Of course, one of the big questions is when we're going to be taking all this in. It seems pretty clear we're not going to have any answers Tuesday night. We might not by Wednesday night. So, so it's going to be a breath-holding exercise. But, but, but our friend, Morgan Peme, who uh, all of us have known for a jillion years in a bunch of ways that are just... Uh, too hot for podcasting to explain. <laughs> it is, uh, too hot for podcasting? We have to get FAQ swag that says that, by the way. 
I, I want I want a shirt with my my face on it. It says a face for radio and <laughs> podcasting. No, I think we should get a shirt with your face on it. it says too hot for podcasting. I literally <laughs> tried to get you to let me print shirts with your face on it, Harry, and you put the kibosh on that. Like, we with need a, Mountain with Man, a... Harry. We need we need this Harry Siegel. Um, hopefully, our our listeners um, will go to the website because we will take a picture to see. This is election week. Mountain Harry. <laughs> Election Week Mountain Harry, who I'm encouraging before Astor Place Barbershop closes, Harry should go get a haircut there just because, you know, it's New York canon. I'm going to give Harry one more week and then I'm going to go to his home and braid his hair. <laughs> and then we can look like twinsies. <laughs> I don't want to say anything too bad about Astor Place. And, and I respect uh, I respect businessmen. I respect local guys, and I was always happy they were there for an emergency. But they were your classic, like, $46 haircut uh, that took longer to get and was not quite as good as, like, your $16 out of borough haircut, in my my honest view. I was always – I was never a fan. I'm very sorry they're going away. but I, I, don't, I, I didn't think they were that expensive. Well, you know what? I'm coming from a place where we're haircut in Greenwich shave. Village. Oh, Haircut, haircut and a shave for me. And, 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 you know, it was like it was like cheaper than an appointment place or whatever, but like not as cheap or as good as Vincent on court. Tell you just just to be perfectly clear. Oh, all right. So there you have it. Vincent on court. Tell you probably isn't even there anymore because Harry's probably talking about the last time he got a shave and a haircut, which I think was, you know, in the 90s <laughs> before prom. <laughs> I cut my own hair. So and whenever I actually do go to a proper salon, they're like, oh, who cuts your hair? And I'm like, I do. And they always look at me and they're like, don't do that. <laughs> Stop doing that. Like, you may be good at some things. Cutting your own hair is not one of them. <laughs> so the one thing I'm I'm really excited to find out about after the election is, one, we finally get to stop hearing all the Max Rose and Malia Takis ads. And two, you know, we're, we're going to find out how bad a shape New York's going to be in, depending on which president ends up being president. Well, I think, you know, Alex, we were talking before Harry jumped on where, you know, if the current president is reelected, he has a sort of personal vendetta against cities, not just New York City, but cities in general, especially the sanctuary cities, and will essentially try and just starve us. And we're already strapped for cash, not just from Albany, but from the federal government. When we think about public housing, when we think about infrastructure, we're still in infrastructure week, if my memory serves me correctly. Right. So... You know, obviously, a Biden administration isn't going to be perfect, but I don't think that he has a disdain for infrastructure and for urban settings uh, where diverse communities and by diverse, I mean, racial, ethnic, religious, economic, uh, all of the things. I don't think that Biden has a disdain for those people, largely because I don't think Biden has a disdain for Americans the way Trump does. Yeah, I think it's going to be pretty hard if Trump wins the election. And there's, you know, you even hear from a lot of right-leaning New Yorkers this narrative of, oh, well, we deserve this because of our sanctuary city policies. And to be pretty honest, we don't have pretty that strong of sanctuary city policies. We're not out there protecting high and low all undocumented persons in this state with as much ICE activity as there is. I'm just looking forward to seeing all of the resistance to the federal government stuff move back to Texas, which is uh, where it was centered during the Obama years. And Texas, of course, is uh, shading 
increasingly not blue, but purple and out of New York. It's been a long ongoing fight with, with this administration and a lot of their policies in a way that, that is a strain and can be unhealthy. I recall before, by the way, the, the city created these, its, its municipal IDs, which are great. You can get you like museum discounts, very useful. I have one. Uh, that you had a handful of skeptics who say, but what if we have a really hostile administration in Washington that tries to, uh, to, to get this information? And, and it was scoffed at at the time. And of course, that's where that ended up. Uh, we've had ongoing fights with ICE that did not start, by the way, with the Trump administration, but have been significantly exacerbated by them. And now we have this anarchist cities bullshit and other attempts to withhold funding on the basis of, you know, screw you, New York, that, that are really ominous for what we'd be looking at in a, uh, in a second Trump term, for sure. Returning to an earlier point, Morgan, he's the co-director of Trump ACDC with his partner, uh, Daniel DeMora. Uh, we really wanted to get this up and out there, even though it's about Atlantic City in the uh, 1980s, early 90s, ahead of the election just because it seems so germane and so immediately relevant right now when you're watching this and you'll hear talking with Morgan about it to the situation we're in. And this Trump keeps repeating the exact same moves he was already pulling, you know, when I was in, uh, you know, diapers, basically. <laughs> when you were basically in diapers. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I'm so glad we were able to have Morgan on just because, you know, as, as some of our listeners may know, Morgan is one of the directors of Get Me Roger Stone. He's been, he was very active in New York City politics for quite some time before he moved his, his professional career a little more national. But this, you know, what I think is so important about the documentary is it's, it's not narrated. It's literally Trump in his own words um, talking about his, his successes and failures. And it highlights how the media has propped up uh, this man who is not been successful for so many decades, time and time again, and just creating this, this false prince um, that has been able to essentially rob us blind on a local, state, and now national and international level. With that, let's jump right in. Morgan, welcome. So ACDC, as soon as I saw it, obviously I thought of Atomic Cafe, the, and for our listeners who don't know what that is, Atomic Cafe is a 1982 documentary chronicling nuclear war and how the atomic bomb and atomic energy was sort of sold to the American public and like where what character it played in the in the public. So they only used actual archival footage, commercials, uh, ways that it shows up in television shows and things like that. And that's what you did. And we're seeing Trump and his Atlantic City. Uh, life through the lens that people saw it at the time. And I love it because I'm a cinema nerd. But what made you decide to choose that stylistically? Well, my co-director, Dan, who was also the editor, is a humongous Atomic Cafe fan. So uh, you certainly hit on one of the sources of our inspiration I think that in the era of fake news, everybody questions the veracity of the pundit class. And if you have an interviewee come in, it seems to jaundice the perspective. But if you're just looking at contemporary archival footage that shows Trump in his interviews of the time, the newscasters of the time, it's not colored 
by bias in the same way. And there have been a lot of great archival films like Senna and Amy. Certainly, uh, we've wanted to do an all archival project for a long time. And so this was kind of a trial run to see how that could work out. And at the same time, show Trump from a perspective that wasn't colored by the liberal elite media bias, but it's just like, this is really how it all played out. We had interviewed uh, Julie Satow, who wrote a book about the plaza, I think maybe about a year ago. And she, around this time, the, the, there's chapters in the book that obviously chronicle when, when Trump was at the plaza and this is the time he's starting to go broke and it's starting to go bankrupt and that kind of thing. Why do you think it's important to kind of show that Trump went broke? Well, first of all, you know, we have to address the mythology that Trump was a good businessman, um, which he just wasn't uh, consistently. He was a completely uh, failed businessman in any venture, pretty much that didn't involve his father putting his hand on the scales to help him out. So we wanted to address that mythology that was largely spawned by uh, The Art of the Deal, which comes out in 1987. And um, also just because this is for a lot of people what underlies their support of Trump. This idea that he is a model manager, that he is a brilliant entrepreneur, um, those are not substantiated by facts. And so, um, you know, we felt like this was a way to address that. And, and actually, while we were making this was when the Times report came out about his taxes and the fact that he still owes $400 million in personally guaranteed loans. Uh, and so it only just affirmed that looking back at the past was a really great way to understand the present. Well, I just love the style. I like the the font you used. It mimics the <laughs> 80s font and the score, too, and all the white noise. It's I have to give a, a lot of props to our composer, Kyle Wilson, who wrote that all 80s original score. It's like very kind of like John Carpenter-esque. I think it's awesome. And uh, Aaron Davis, who did the graphics, we really tried to lean into that late 80s, early 90s aesthetic. Um, Alex, it's funny that you say that because... The, the first thing I said to Morgan after I watched the film, I was like, I love the font. The font is amazing. And and the, the score made me think of like old school 80s game shows that we just don't see anymore. So Morgan, I want to follow up with something that Alice asked you because, I mean, I've seen Senna, you know, obviously I'm not a documentarian like you and Alex, but I really thought the choice of not having your voice or anyone's voice guiding the the short film was really powerful. It literally is Trump in his own words. And so if you had to do it again, would you still make that same choice? Or do you think that because the corruption and theft has been so deep and so great, uh, what are sort of the 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 pros and cons of of actually having Trump say it in his own voice or having someone literally walk people through all of the grift of just the you all just covered the 80s basically. You you all didn't really get into uh, the the latter 90s and the aughts where we really get into $100 million deals where he's just uh, unencumbered in many ways by the banks. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Chrissy. I mean, we wanted Trump to essentially be the narrator of this documentary. So it was unimpeachable 
the interpretation of what he said. Uh, we tried to do the same thing with um, Get Me Roger Stone by having Roger be the through line. So we nobody could say it was a hatchet job because the worst things that are said about Roger in our movie are by, said by Roger. Some bad things by Harry, too. Um, but, um, you know, I, I ended I up that, on the cutting room floor. I'm just going to say but that's OK. It, well, can I say? <laughs> Uh, those things happen. We did 110 interviews for that movie. So a lot of people wound up on the cutting room floor. And I would say that, you know, it kind of occurred to us that it was amazing that nobody did make an all archival film during the first term of the Trump mm-hmm. presidency, given how wall to wall the media coverage has been of him his entire life and how compelling it is just to play out those clips and let the story unfold as the public followed it. And um, if they're, you know, if we end up in a second term, I, I'm sure that somebody will probably do that. Yeah, and I, I want to follow also about the media, because what I thought was really powerful was so many instances. We saw the media just gushing over this man who's saddled with debt. We see Phil Donahue like, hey, girls, don't you, you know, don't you want your daughters to date this guy? You know, and, and we still see it now in, in the past few years. The media is just not ever fully grasping the danger and the corruption of this man uh, and still treating him as though he's this successful bachelor that, you know, we should all aspire to be like or be with. It's it is, again, just the the past mirroring the present, how frustrating it was to see how the media created this mystique of Donald Trump as epitomizing that kind of greed is good era of the 80s, this uh, high flying jet setting glamorous figure. You can watch him on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And uh, and then only a few years later, the media being like, oh, yeah, everything that we showed you before was just a, a house of cards. And, um, and the fact that the media just so eagerly plunged into that same mistake during the Trump campaign, and there's been all this hand-wringing, how could we have made that mistake? It's like, what well, you actually had already literally Multiple made that times. same mistake Multiple about times. the same person. Right. Um, And so uh, there's really no excusing it. And we actually, as we cut back the film, some of that got stripped away. And so I'm glad that you still saw that. But, you know, you have Barbara Walters in the early 80s just singing Trump's praises to the most ridiculous hyperbolic level. And a few years later, just grilling him, Phil Donahue, the same thing and literally the same people. It's almost as if they were um overzealous in sticking it to him the second time because they felt like they had been burned by him in their initial um, coverage. Uh, But yes, then they fell into the same trap again, just, uh, you know, a few decades later. And then last point for me, I I will say this, watching the film, and it's a short film, but it's incredibly powerful. Like you all pack in a lot in 20 minutes. But I think what was really palpable for me was sort of what was unspoken yet so in the forefront this analysis of race and gender in the sense that only in America could a white man owe hundreds of millions of dollars and still get hundreds of millions of dollars. Like there's no way that I could walk in a bank. I don't think that there's a way that Oprah could walk in a bank and owe hundreds of millions of dollars and still get hundreds of millions of dollars. It was this blindness that these creditors and these bankers had and still have where I think it's only given to white men. I don't think anyone else in this country gets that benefit of the doubt. And I just saw it time and time again. It was really frustrating for me because it happened, say, 40 years ago, but it's still happening today when we think about 
sort of small businesses and the inequities on a gender level or on a racial and ethnic level as well? It's infuriating because basically this mythology is self-perpetuating and it and it just snowballs, right? So people buy into this falsehood that Trump is a brilliant businessman, so then they give him all this money. And the fact that he put his name on all these buildings makes him seem like a bigger and bigger deal. And so the bankers get deeper and deeper and deeper in the hole with him, and then they can't foreclose on them because then they lose their money. And you know, one of the things that also wound up on the cutting room floor, but when you see him at the Plaza Hotel announcing the bankruptcy of the Taj, Who's the head of the Bondholders Association standing right next to him is Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary today. Uh, And so it's these same players uh, who have sustained Trump over all these years. And absolutely, it comes from this white privilege, this this sense that he was a golden boy, um, which was not at all substantiated by fact. And yet that still carried over to the mythology of The Apprentice which ends up becoming one of the biggest shows on television, really is the only thing that sustains Trump economically uh, in the aughts. So, uh, yes, yeah, you're, you're right to be, uh, to be pissed off about that. <laughs> so, Morgan, where can people see the film right now? It, you can watch it on, on Vimeo. You can go to TrumpACDC.com uh, to check it out. And, you know, we wanted to put it out free to the public because it is such a potent document for this time. We also felt like because we did it as all archival piece that it wouldn't smack of that same type of bias and that maybe this is something that people who have this false perspective on Trump as a brilliant businessman would be willing to engage with in a way that maybe they'd be a little bit more receptive because it's interesting to see the evolution of Trump's own take on his bankruptcy, because in ways that he's been very consistent. But um, that interview that we use at the opening of the film from the late 90s is really the most candid I've ever heard him be about his bankruptcy with this obscure BBC interview, which we were so blown away when we viewed it that he's like, yes, I did owe a billion dollars. Yes, I, I was like the if the walls were closing in on me, which is something that we would never hear Trump say now, where he's papered over all of his failings. But I, I mean, it, those words come out of Trump's mouth. It's not no one else portrays it that way. And that was the truth. The walls were really closing in on him. And the banks had a choice whether to crush him or to throw him a lifeline. And because probably for the reasons that Chrissy was talking about, they threw him the lifeline. What struck me a lot about it was that then he was selling like this 80s kind of greed, you know, this jet set lifestyle, borrow it, you could make it, you could do it. And now it just and it struck me in your film. And now it's like selling debt to the poor. And um, and that's what I started thinking about after I after I watched your film, just like that shift. And it's not even a jet set lifestyle. It's just any kind of like suburban normalcy that you too can get if you just go into massive amounts of debt. Right. Well, of course, it's it's the little guy who gets burned, right? I mean, everybody knows that Trump screws over everybody who works for him, essentially. And so the contractors took pennies on the dollar for the work that they did. Um, the fact that it's not the big bond. Wilbur Ross didn't take a bath um, from uh, as a bondholder, it was the little bondholders who got burned, the people who put their retirement savings into into these uh, junk bonds. And I reread 
Wayne Barrett's book about Trump for the making of this. And it's just so important for people to understand that, you know, with Trump's first deals, which we don't even cover here in New York with the Commodore Hotel, which becomes the Grand Hyatt, and then with Trump Tower, I mean, those were built on record tax abatements handed to him by the public, where basically anybody with half a brain would have made tons of money just being involved in those deals. It epitomized crony capitalism. It's the fact that Fred Trump had such a close relationship with Abe Beam and Hugh Carey, and they used their fixer, Roy Cohn, to just come in. And to this date, I just looked it up, Andrea Bernstein had an article in January that just the tax break on the Grand Hyatt alone is now over $410 million that New Yorkers handed to Trump. And for a building that when he built it, you know, it costs like $120 million. And so, you know, that all all of Trump's success in New York was really built on the backs of New Yorkers. And we created that monster. And then he went down to Atlantic City and casinos are generally the easiest ways to to make a, a mint. And he blew that because he just bought all these ridiculous junk bonds. And, and as we show earlier in the film, he's like, junk bonds? Like, what kind of fool takes junk bonds? And then he loads up on junk bonds. And it's only two months after the Taj Mahal opens that it's essentially already a disastrous failure because in the, the Taj Mahal needed to make in excess of a million dollars a day in order just to, to make its bottom line. And no casino had made a million dollars a day in Atlantic City at the time. Plus, even if it were to make that amount of money, which it ended up doing so, but by that time he was in such grievous debt, he was cannibalizing from his own casinos. Like, what kind of moron opens up three casinos out of eight and doesn't think that that's going to hurt the bottom line? So just the most basic ideas of a business, it's like, huh, I shouldn't open up a business if even if I'm doing record profits, I'm going to be failing. I shouldn't open up a business that competes with my own business. It's like you don't need an MBA to think, huh, maybe that wasn't so wise. But these are just the type of errors that he made that that brought about his spectacular failure in Atlantic City. So speaking of uh, Trump being in a corner, he's in one right now. And Speaking of bias, I hope you'll talk about the decision to put this out just ahead of the election when we're looking at decades old footage. I think it's great uh, timing and uh, the, the video is really compelling and people should watch it. But obviously, we've been litigating this publicly and in the courts over, over multiple cycles now. And uh, we'd just love to get your uh, thoughts and story about uh, when this is coming out. I, look, I understand. I mean, the, the the timing was really a function of when we just made it. But I would also say that there's no call to action in this film. Uh, there's We're not pushing you to do anything to make any decision. It, all we're doing is just laying out clips that were once viewed by people in the in the public domain. And so I don't see this as comparable to some sort of campaign ad. I certainly, you know, I... I have very complex feelings about this election in general, but, you know, I think it is a we viewed it as a public service um, and to to bring people's attention back to these things. We have such short attention spans and such poor knowledge of history. And it's one of the things I really appreciate about your column in the news, Harry. It's like a lot of times it's just like, hey, remember this, you know, just these these things that um, longtime followers of, of New York politics like us 
uh, have in the memory banks, but most people, it, it's just completely lost on them. And for me, so much of this was, uh, I mean, Harry, I don't know if you remember, like I, I remember so strongly that Trump Castle commercial, uh, but I just didn't remember, you know, I remember the jingle and I remember, but just the fact that it ends with this really creepy wink from the cocktail waitress in the casino. You know, this was uh, in a lot of ways a um, like a time capsule for me in my childhood. Oh my and God. to be able to revisit that uh, was it was a real it was really fun. So Wayne put out Trump, the deals and the downfall right after Trump was, was a loser. And it had his uh, his ritual beating cycle from the same people who puffed him up. And so the book was a flop, right? Who wanted right. to read about this loser? Right. He got to reissue it, sadly, in 2016 as the greatest show on earth. But, you yes. know, he'd had, he'd had Trump nailed for, for decades. He'd been reporting on him since the 70s. Book is out, very early 90s. And it, it's just so odd to see these cycles and, and watching your film, all, all of the nonsense that's repeated, like uh, Trump turning on a reporter for a line of questioning he's totally aware of, you know, to perform his outrage. Uh, all these parts... To close out here, you know, th this is some of your childhood, but what was it like time traveling back and just immersing yourself in that era Trump as we're in the middle of this era Trump? It's so striking just because obviously we're so familiar with his every uh, verbal tick now, his whole playbook. Uh, you know, I've been deep in the trenches of following this since 2011 when we started following Roger Stone, forget me, Roger Stone. But what was striking was obviously how he just hasn't changed a bit. And even in that interview, the first interview with Barbara Walters, he tells the story about how he used to steal his like brother's tinker toys. And then he would just glue them together to make these like monstrous buildings. And then his brother could never have them back because he glued them together. And then he goes, well, I guess I'm kind of the same now as I was then, you know, which is we really do see like he hasn't changed or progressed over the time. But there was an element, I think, that did shine through for me of his charisma and, and a little bit of charm in the in the 80s where you see why he became the shiny object and also a little bit more self-awareness. Oh, at times I'll be a little self-effacing. Um, I will acknowledge my not total grandiose perfection in a way that that's fallen away. Like I, there was there was a degree of self-awareness that he lost over time. And then also that you see how when he goes from being this epic winner to being an epic loser, it really does harden him and and it brings out his anger. And that is something that never abates. And so um, it shifts his own perspective of the world. He sees himself as a victim, that he's being persecuted. Oh, the media, they're after me. It's like, you are a complete creation of the media. Like, what are you even talking about? So that was interesting to see that trajectory in how he views the public's own perception of him. But fundamentally, he even, you know, he he really doesn't learn from being a young man in his 30s to being, you know, an old man in his 70s. Um, he just hardens into um, what is, in a lot of ways, his his worst characteristics. And so, um, yeah, it's very illuminating. And, it, and it's, uh, it is a mind-blowing experience to just spend weeks 
watching old Trump clips. I do not uh, recommend it to anybody. <laughs> I feel like in a smirk, he's made the journey over 40 years all the way from, I can't believe I'm getting away with this shit, to I can believe I'm getting away with this shit without really changing more. the shit. Yeah. And also just that um, how he just believes his own hype, you know, uh, and I, I found this, too, just with Jared Kushner making uh, Slumlord Millionaire for the Netflix Dirty Money series. It's amazing how you can be handed everything from daddy and not understand at all the incredible leg up that you've gotten over everybody else and that you can be so self-righteous and so self-congratulatory about your success when it's just like so there's just like a one-to-one correspondence between getting money from daddy and where you are in life and that there is no appreciation of that. I mean, this is always what we say about these guys who are like born on third base. They're told that they hit a triple, right? And then they start finger wagging. Jared did this last week with black folks, you know, finger wagging people who are in the parking lot, not even in the stadium, sort of like, "Mm, well, that's just too bad for them. If they'd only worked harder, they could be where I am. And it's like this lack of self-awareness is almost spectacular with this whole crew. I, I've read, I, I can't confirm this as as a fact, but, um, you know, that if he had just taken his, uh, Trump had taken his inheritance from Fred and just put in the S&P 500 and not touched it, that he actually would have made ultimately more money. And the hubris that you see with Trump all throughout. So he gets these crony capitalism deals in New York that make him wealthy on his own accord. And what does he do? He immediately just starts blowing it on a bunch of crap. Like he buys the New Jersey generals of the United States Football League, which is so world famous that it like caved in three years. Right. He buys um, the the biggest yacht in the world from. And this is my blowing from Jamal Khashoggi's uncle, um, Adnan Khashoggi. Um, he overpays massively for the Trump Plaza. He buys the Trump shuttle. It's just like he pisses all the money away, like right out of the gate buying crap. And so, um, you know, he really does. He doesn't demonstrate just basic financial acumen. Um, he, but he gets caught up in his own hype. And I think this is kind of like what, what Harry was aiming at. It's just, um, this, this idea of the Trump myth is self-perpetuating and it took him into the presidency. And unfortunately, there's never been anything that chastened him, right? So, you know, even when you see that he's down when he's at the, the plaza announcing the Taj bankruptcy, but because he's always just swiftly built back up, He's always um, rewarded for his bad behavior. And so, you know, I've heard throughout the presidency, like, oh, how could Trump think this? How could he think? How could he not think it? Every single step of the way, his failures have proven to be titanic successes. He, he has only had confirmation bias. Um, so, you know, I, I, I understand why he feels this way about himself. Um, but it, it takes a certain type of personality to discard everything else and to just completely have amnesia about your failings and only remember your successes. Morgan, thank you. Thank you a ton for taking the time. Listen, if you've listened to this whole thing, you could watch this whole film in less time than this has taken. And you will enjoy it. You will enjoy it. It's Trump, yeah. ACDC. It's, it's really good. And, it, you know, Trump is the narrator, as Morgan said. So, so you can hear him speak for himself. And hey, fun fact. I met Morgan in the green room of ABC many, many years ago, and I met Harry through Morgan. Did you know? Did you all know that? And I've known Alex longer than any of you. <laughs> Even I Harry? I've known Morgan. I, I've also, known. 
Yeah, please. Oh, I've known Morgan since I was 15 years old. Yeah. And what about Harry? Uh, uh, Harry did not know Morgan since he was 15 year old. <laughs> I, I met Morgan on his college campus. Um, going, I going to school with Alex's sister yeah, in college. Get out of Dodge. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Morgan, have us come back. Can you just really quickly give us a rundown of all the documentaries that we should be checking out? So we know that the award-winning Get Me Roger Stone is out there. You also have yes, Slumdog. Yes, um, Slumlord, Slumlord Millionaire uh, on, on, Netflix? In the, on Netflix and also The Swamp on HBO and HBO Max. Okay, great. And then TrumpACDC.com is where we can find the short film, but it packs a serious punch. Thanks, Morgan. Thank you. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brick House Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to our guests this week, Trump ACDC Director Morgan Peckmay, our executive producers Alex Brooklyn, and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Wear a mask, get a flu shot, stand by for a special Gab Fest after Election Day. I'm Christina Greer with my host, Harry Siegel. Take care. <laughs>